0: So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared US Debates. And the debate that you're about to hear relates to this thing that we are all living through together, the coronavirus. And we know that a lot has been said about what's going to change forever when the virus is finally abated that day we all look forward to. But what's going to change forever in areas like uh, workplaces? Will they always be different after this? Will retail shopping change forever? And the way that college students study, will it ever be the same again? And then there's the question that we're going to be taking on directly, and it's literally a global question. It's this, who gets to be number one in the arena of great power competition after coronavirus? Now, we Americans, or at least many of us, are accustomed to the notion of American primacy, where supposedly the nation that in a crisis, the rest of the world has to hear from and has to turn to and often needs to heed. But now there's an argument that the coronavirus crisis is opening the door for another nation to move up while the U.S. moves down and that nation is China. Ironically, the place where COVID-19 first started. China has been maneuvering for advantage during this crisis, very publicly sending help and aid around the world and also trumpeting its claimed conquest of the virus as an example of the Chinese government's way of doing things, being better, basically usurping the role of the so-called indispensable nation that has long belonged to the United States. So China has been gaining on the U.S. for years economically, but is coronavirus going to be a game changer in this broader regard? Well, in these questions, we thought we had the makings of a debate, so we had it. Four superbly qualified debaters said yes or no to this statement, coronavirus will reshape the world order in China's favor. We recorded this debate on May 21st. We did it remotely. And as always, our debate went in three rounds, and our audience tuning in online voted to decide the winner. But you can still weigh in on this debate. We are still taking votes now at iq2us.org. That's iq2us.org. There you can cast your first pre-debate vote, before you've heard the arguments, for, against, or undecided. And remember, you're going to be casting two votes, one right now and one after you've heard the arguments. And as always, the team that changes the most minds wins. Now let's meet our debaters. So first up, to argue for the resolution, which again, coronavirus will reshape the world order in China's favor, Kurt Campbell. Kurt, you are CEO of the Asia Group. You served as an official on East Asian affairs at the State Department under President Obama. It's so great to have you with us. Thanks so
2: much for joining us. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: And can you tell us, and I'm going to ask everybody this question, I'm in Washington, D.C. Where are you in the world?
2: I'm in Washington, D.C. as
1: well. And yet we're so far away from each other. Yes. Your partner, I want to also introduce Kishore Mahubani. Kishore, you are a former president of the U.N. Security Council. Now you're a distinguished fellow at the National University of Singapore. You have a new book out. It's called Has China Won, which makes it sound like you're very much on topic for this debate. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. So thanks so much for joining us. I'm I'm delighted to be with you even though it's 9:10 p.m in Singapore so you are Without question, our longest distant virtual debater so far. It's great to have you with us. So that's the team arguing for the resolution. Now let's meet the team arguing against the resolution. First, please, let's say hello to Minqing Pei. Minqing, thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You have debated with us before. You're back because you're such a good debater. You are professor of government at Claremont McKenna College, and you're a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. And where are you joining us from today?
3: Claremont, California.
1: Yep very close to uh, where you're working. It's very early in the morning. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, we have a lot of time zones going on in this, uh, in this recording. And finally, I want to welcome to the debate, also arguing against the resolution, Susan Thornton. Susan, uh, you served for nearly 30 years in the State Department, where you're now retired, uh, and you were an official uh, on East Asian affairs. Again, so this topic is just, it's your specialty. Um, you're now a senior fellow and visiting professor at Yale. And... Um, You've debated with us before as well. And as with Mincheng, we have you back because you are, are so good at this. So I wanna thank you for joining us. Final question to you, where are you at in the world right now?
4: Well, John, I'm in Lisbon, Maine on a farm. So it's a pretty nice place to weather COVID-19. Oh. All
1: right, those are our four debaters. Again, our resolution is coronavirus will reshape the world order in China's favor. As always, our debate's gonna go in three rounds. And then we count on you, our online audience, to decide the winner, and you do that by voting. And here's how that works. You will be asked by me to cast two votes, one in just a few seconds before you've heard the arguments, and then another one after that, after you've heard all of the arguments from our debaters, and... We give victory to the team whose numbers change the most in an upward direction between the first and the second vote. Basically, whoever changes the most minds will be declared our winner. So let's launch with round one. Uh, Round one are our opening statements. Each debater speaks in turn to make the case for or against the resolution. Those statements will be four minutes each. Once again, the resolution, coronavirus, coronavirus will reshape the world order in China's favor. First up to speak for the motion, Kurt Campbell.
2: John, thank you very much. And it's a pleasure to be with all of you. And I'm uh, thrilled to be able to do this with my friend Kishore. Let me just begin uh, with a point that John made. Um, This is an incredibly challenging period. And this proposition is challenging uh, for Americans. And I just want to underscore here that I want you to set aside what your hopes are and what your expectations are for the United States and look at the situation factually. This is the greatest upheaval in global politics uh, since World War II. And after World War II, we saw a reordering of global politics. And I think we want to propose that we will see the same thing during these circumstances as well. Much of what's going to occur is because of China's performance, but an important ingredient in what's going to transpire is what's happening in the United States. What do we expect from a great power, a leading nation during this period, a period of pandemic? There are three things that we would expect from any country that wants to lead the global uh, situation. The first, number one, We expect a country to provide domestic capacity and demonstrate competence in terms of dealing uh, with a pandemic or the situation. And I think no one would argue that the United States has been able to do anything of the kind. It's been a tragedy. Uh, to see the incompetence with which the United States has dealt with this issue. And we we see lacking in leadership, in public health capacity, in a whole host of uh, circumstances that underscore the lack of American capacity to deal with this challenge. Number two, we would expect that the leading nation would be able to provide international support in terms of PPE and equipment to be able to deal uh, with the challenges. We've seen, again, nothing of the sort from the United States. We've been sending teams around to try to find excess equipment and bring it back to the United States. What we see in contrast is China. They've been reaching out, providing equipment, providing support to a variety of countries around the world. And third, in addition to demonstrating capacity domestically, and providing support to the nations of the world. We would expect the leading nation to convene groups of countries to share best practices, to figure out how to tackle the problem in terms of vaccine development and the like. The WHO held its meetings over the last two days. And I want to quote from Carl Bilt. He observed uh, the uh, meetings of the WHO over a period of two days and says... The U.S. has left behind any ambition of global leadership and any function as a global inspiration. This is tragic but true. So I want to just suggest to you that this is a difficult thing for Americans to comprehend and understand, but we have been completely lacking in our ability to deal with the situation, and China has surged into the vacuum. Thank you, Kurt Campbell. And again, you're asking people to vote yes
1: on the resolution. Uh, Now, our next debater will be speaking against the resolution,
3: Minxing Pei. Well, good morning. Thank you. What Kurt said is that the U.S. has scored its own goals, but it does not mean that China is scoring the goals into the U.S. net. Uh, First, let's just remember what Churchill said about the U.S., America will always do the right thing after exhausting all the options. So uh, I have complete faith in the U.S. system in correcting the problems it right now faces. After all, we're going to have an election in November, and most likely uh, that will provide a turning point. Now let me turn back to China. Whether China can take advantage of this opportunity depends on whether China has the resources so even when we look at the short term, China does not have the resources to so-called do the surge into this vacuum left by the current U.S. stumbles. Uh, it's too early for China to declare victory. Uh, the virus keeps popping up in China, even after it has been uh, rather, uh, rather quickly contained. Uh, and in the short term, China faces enormous economic difficulties Uh, The economy is still not at the full capacity. Uh, Foreign trade is virtually paralyzed. And uh, China's uh, economic shock has left 70 million people in China unemployed. So I just simply don't see in the short term whether China has the capacity to invest in the so-called global opportunities to increase its economic influence. Then when you look at the medium term, you also need to ask this question, does China have capacity and the resources? My answer is no. Uh, Let's remember that China is still a very relatively poor country. Its middle income, per capita income, is one fifth of that of the US. It's the size of the Chinese economy is still two thirds of the US, despite 40 years of rapid economic uh, growth. And when you look at China's economic trajectory, Uh, You cannot be very optimistic either because the main driver of China's economic growth are all losing steam. Uh, It's losing the cost of cheap labor. Uh, It is now facing uh, the backlash against China in terms of its trade practices. And it needs to invest enormously in its domestic capabilities to upgrade its technology. And finally, let's look at China's domestic problems. China faces enormous challenges of domestic unrest, especially in Xinjiang, in Tibet, and also in Hong Kong. So I urge you to vote for the proposition that China will not take advantage of this opportunity and become the number one anytime time in the future. Minxing Pei
1: arguing that coronavirus will reshape the world order in China's favor. Next, offering his opening statement for the resolution that coronavirus will reshape the
5: world order in China's favor, here is Kishore Mahbubani. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with all of you. And I would like to put across three points, which I think will also reinforce some of the points that my partner Kurt has made. The first key point is that the reshaping of the world order in favor of China, which is happening now, will be seen by future historians as a perfectly natural development. From their longer perspective, they will note, as the British historian Angus Madison has done so, that the two largest economies of the world from the year 1 to the year 1820 were always those of China and India. So the severe underperformance of these societies and the rest of Asia in the 19th and 20th centuries was abnormal. Indeed, it was abnormal for China and India to have less than 5% of the world's GDP in 1950. So we are returning to the normal world when China develops a number two or number one uh, economy in the world. And size generates influence. And here, my response to Pei Minxin, if you look at past performance, uh, look at the past performance of the t- past 2,000 years, it'll give you a clue of what, where China uh, is going. And of course, but as Kurt said, the incompetence of the Trump administration across several dimensions has also enabled Chinese influence in the world to grow. The second key point is that the shape and nature of the world order will be determined by the perceptions of the world, especially the 6 billion people who live outside the US and China. Now, for several decades, Most of these 6 billion people were happy to live in the 1945 rules-based order, which was generously gifted by the West, by America, to the world. And for several decades, the U.S. was a wise manager of this order, allowing other countries, including China, to grow and thrive. But now, there is no doubt whatsoever that the Trump administration has turned away From this 1945 rules-based order, walking away from important organizations like the World Trade Organization and the World Health Organization. So to put it simply, there has been a divergence of views within the Trump administration and the rest of the world, and there has been a convergence of views between China and the world, and that's how the world order is being reshaped in favor of China. And my third point, in the eyes of the 6 billion people who are watching COVID-19, there is no doubt that after the initial missteps in Wuhan, China's overall management of the COVID-19 crisis has been far more competent than that of the US. And one statistic illustrates this. In terms of fatalities per million people, the number in the US is about 280 in China, is less than five. Since there's scepticism of China's statistics, let me say that all the East Asian numbers are the same. Japan, six. South Korea, five. Singapore, four. Vietnam, zero. And equally importantly, the world is shocked that the Trump administration decided to walk away from the World Health Organization at a time when the world has never needed it more. So please vote yes in favour of the motion.
1: Thank you very much, Kishore. And our final statement will be an argument against that resolution. And it comes from Susan Thornton.
4: Thank you, John. I think it's interesting that Kurt has argued basically that coronavirus will negatively impact the U.S. position in the world order. And Kishore basically argued that the world order is changing in China's favor irregardless of the coronavirus, but our proposition is about whether coronavirus is going to reshape the world order in China's favor. So the question is whether this pandemic will translate to increases in China's relative influence in its economic growth, its stability, security, and most importantly, its attractiveness or its soft power. And in my view, the impacts of the coronavirus are going to be a net negative for China in these areas. It's true that in some cases there could be opportunities for Chinese gains and in some cases maybe even filling a vacuum that the U.S. has left. But again, I think China is unlikely to be able to capitalize on these opportunities, and we've already seen evidence of that. So my partner, Minxin, has already talked eloquently about the impact of the virus on China's economic growth and political stability, and the issue of China's credibility in this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, These are obviously areas where the virus is presenting major challenges to China's domestic situation and to its ability to continue its rapid rise in the international system. But I'm going to focus my argument on China's external relations and how it is seen by other countries in the context of this pandemic. If we look at the issue of rising or falling influence and reputation, it's pretty clear that China has taken multiple reputational hits at the hands of the coronavirus. First, China is generally regarded as the source of the virus, which is an obvious liability when people around the world are suffering devastation from it. Secondly, it's widely perceived that China delayed informing about the outbreak and has not been fully transparent, which makes the situation for other countries worse than it needed to be. This may not be completely fair, but China's objections and denials are not gaining traction among others in the world. Third, the narrative in many countries is that China tried to corner the market on COVID-related medical supplies once the Dire nature of the outbreak became clear in Wuhan, and this is the impression left by urgent worldwide purchases by China of PPE in late January and early February. Minshin spoke about the impact on China's domestic economy, but the pandemic has highlighted bottlenecks in globalization and international supply chains that countries around the world are now looking to remedy. Japan is looking to reshore production from China, as are US and European chemical manufacturers and many others. So this will lead to disinvestment from China at a time of grave economic volatility. The pandemic has also been damaging to China's signature Belt and Road Initiative, as multiple recipient countries are looking for workouts amid distress in their financial pictures. Uh, China's COVID-19 diplomacy has not gone over well, from mask diplomacy where deliveries of PPE were accompanied by demands for written letters of appreciation to wolf warrior diplomacy spreading misinformation to maltreatment of foreigners in China during the COVID pandemic lockdown. Numerous countries in the rush to acquire PPE at the height of the crisis received faulty or counterfeit medical items from China. And Chinese officialdom has gone on the attack against countries just because they support an inquiry into the sources of the outbreak, which is a very reasonable and necessary undertaking. Uh, One prominent Chinese media critic called Australia, the country of Australia, gum on the bottom of China's shoe. This has not gone over well. So these are just a few instances of missteps and, as Minchin said, own goals that China has uh, seen in recent months, but they point to larger problems that are not going away, insecurity, lack of transparency, and other problems in capacity to lead. So I think it's clear China will not make gains from this, and you should vote against the proposition.
1: Thank you very much, Susan Thornton. And that concludes our first round, our formal opening statements. And now we move on to our second round. And our second round is where we have much more of a freewheeling conversation and the debaters can address one another directly and take questions also from me. And we have some questions from you in our audience that we will also bring into the conversation. Our our resolution is coronavirus will reshape the world order in China's favor. We've heard Kurt Campbell and Kishore Mahbubani uh, make their case uh, in favor of the resolution by describing... The moment we're in as one of those great reordering moments uh, in the way that World War II uh, reshaped the world order and brought uh, led to American primacy, they're arguing two things that this virus and its reaction will both bring down America's uh, leadership role and bring up China's to fill the vacuum. They point out, number one, what the United States has been doing wrong, a very Broad failure on global leadership, uh, bad example of competence, uh, not being able to supply the world with what the world needs, not uh, stepping in to convene uh, leadership groups to s- figure out solutions, to put to go- together coalitions of problem solvers. They also say that in a larger sense, it needs to be recognized that China's return to primacy is to some degree the arc of history returning to its natural course, that China has been a long-standing global cultural influence, the last 200 years uh, have been more of an anomaly, and that it's a natural thing for China to be reasserting its position a- a- in the world in of course with where it stood over the last couple of thousand years. They finally say that the determinant of whether America leads the world is not up to America alone, but there are actually six billion people in the world who need to see America as the leader of the world and that that's not happening, particularly as they say that the Trump administration has made it uh, somewhat clear that it's not interested in that role with an America First policy. And they cite as a specific example, walking away from the World Health Organization funding requirement in the middle of a pandemic, as an example. The team arguing against the resolution, Minching Pei and Susan Thornton, they say, yes, the United States has not done very well at the outset, but that the United States can course correct that that's doable, that the United States has done that before. They also argue that um, China just doesn't have the capacity or the resources to fill in this gap, that it has its own domestic problems at home. Its economy is not what it was even a few years ago. The coronavirus has wounded that economy even further. It has not actually defeated the virus, that it keeps coming back. Um, ...their cheap labor advantage has been eroding for some time, that the country domestically is facing a political backlash for the way that it hit this. And then in terms of its soft power uh, influence around the world, it's taken several reputational hits. Again... For China to lead, it needs others to follow. And China is not inspiring in that regard. Uh, Such things as shipping out bad equipment, bad treatment of foreigners, that the attractiveness of China and the attractiveness of the United States has long been part of its soft power, that China doesn't compensate for that uh, with the way that it conducts its business, both domestically and globally. All right, so there's a lot to talk to in that. But I want to go first to this issue that Susan Thornton brought up near the end of China's soft power. Its behaviors uh, really represent a series of liabilities uh, in that regard, that uh, you, you can't look at China and see an exemplary model that the rest of the world would be inspired by. And Kurt Campbell, that that was so much a part of what was involved with American primacy as well. What's your response to that?
2: I would just say, John, that I think we have a tendency when we look at China currently on the global stage to focus too much on its soft power and not enough on its power. China is perceived by most countries in the world as a surging power. It's a young power in the sense of its uh, newfound role. Uh, Rising powers in their early stages are often untamed. Uh, sometimes brutal in their public diplomacy, and China is no exception. And so I would simply say the key here is uh, looking at the responses of most countries on the international scene. Very few countries take on China directly. Most seek to get along and work with China. And almost every country in, in the world, if you ask them privately, what country has led the way during the pandemic, they would, of course, offer some of the concerns that Susan has laid out, but they would also compare it uh, very unfavorably in the sense of how the United States has responded. So I would simply say that uh, China is demonstrating power on the global stage, and too often we believe that the most important component in that power is soft power, but China is exhibiting something else, John, which is hard power, and it's very effective in the current context.
1: Minsheng, can you respond to that point?
3: Yeah. Uh, well, uh, there are two cases that show, A, China actually misuses its power to its own disadvantage. It wastes resources. And that is the case of the Belt and Road. The Belt and Road Initiative is this nominally a trillion-dollar infrastructure project which China somehow will finance. But when you look at the record of this project, it's littered with... Failures with uh, very problematic investments. And China is likely to waste most of it. So uh, I agree with Kurt that China has a lot of power, but I don't agree with the notion that China is using its power wisely and effectively and productively. And second is that where China does flaunt its power, it tends to antagonize people. And here I want to use the example of South China Sea, where China seizes... Uh, some uh, reefs and build uh, artificial islands and then bully the neighboring countries. The result is that these countries are likely to be American friends, America's friends rather than China's friends. So when you look at the record of China's uh, use of its newly acquired power, it's also uh, scoring its own goals. Kishore, do you want to jump in on that?
5: Well, I, what, what key point I want to make, if you don't mind, as someone who lives uh, outside the United States, that one of the biggest gifts that the United States has given to the rest of the world is that it's educated the elites of the world very well. they graduates of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, everywhere. And so you, you are, you're dealing with a very sophisticated audience today. And it's interesting that President Trump referred to The Lancet as one of his sources in his letter... And let me just tell you what the editor, The Lancet, said about the way the United States and the West handle the uh, COVID-19 crisis. And he says that the reason why I've been very critical of the UK government, the US administration, is that Lancet came up with five papers at the end of January. Repeat, end of January. These five papers describe a new virus. They showed the virus was deadly, that it was related to SARS, that it was killing people. The number of deaths was rising Patients were being admitted to ICUs. They required ventilation. There was person-to-person transmission. All the warnings, every one of them, were given in the last week of January. And what, you know what Richard Horton said? Europe and the US did nothing in February, did nothing in March. That's magnificent incompetence.
1: Let me, let, me take, let, let me take your point, Kishore, to Susan Thornton then, and, and, and we heard the same also from, from your opponent, Kurt Gamble, that we're talking about, you know, these, the, the, this is a zero-sum game, U.S. up, China down, verse, vice versa. So you've made the case that China can't go up so aggressively because of its liabilities, but your opponents are arguing that this is a seesaw thing, and regardless of what China is doing, the U.S. is creating a power vac- vacuum by abdicating its leadership role in a variety of ways, some of which Kishore just pointed out. So part of this equation, I know that Min Chang said it's correctable, but Susan, your opponents are saying the damage is lasting and enduring and deep.
4: Well, I'd like to make a couple points, John, thanks. First, I was talking to a Korean former official the other day who was bridling at the compliments Korea was getting for having done a magnificent job with handling COVID. And he said, look, we don't really know who's doing a great job on handling COVID. It could be that the Swedish answer is the right answer in the long term, and we won't know for a long time. So I think it's important to state here that, yes, the U.S. looks like it's fumbled early on, and yes, it looks like the Chinese have handled it. But it's an open question as to where this is all going. Secondly, look, we're here to talk about whether or not this coronavirus is going to advantage China. And in order for this coronavirus to advantage China, it's going to be able to need to convert U.S. fumbles and stumbles into something positive for itself on the global stage. And I would argue that they've absolutely failed to do that. I think it's shameful that both the U.S. and China have approached this coronavirus pandemic, which is such a catastrophe for the world, as a zero-sum competition, as you just mentioned. It's obvious that we should be cooperating. And the fact that China can't step up and take advantage of the U.S. attitude in this crisis and show that it's ready for cooperation and reaching out to other countries and doing a better job with its diplomacy, I think just points to the fact that it's really, its power maybe uh, has been rising over the last several decades, but in this moment where they could convert U.S. failures to something dramatic, they are unable to do it and they're going in the opposite direction.
1: This is Intelligence Squared U.S. More debate in just a moment. From Intelligence Squared U.S., I'm John Donvan. We're in the middle of round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, and here is Kurt Campbell debating for the resolution coronavirus will reshape the world order in China's favor.
2: John, I have to push back at this. The best case study is what just happened at the WHO. Susan's saying somehow China's not trying to address the uh, challenge directly. President Xi Jinping can be a very tough leader, was the leader that spoke out uh, promising $2 billion to the world, to Africa, to Latin America, to other developing nations. In contrast, President Trump did not speak, no one from the United States did, uh, instead suggesting that we were gonna withhold full, further funding to the organization unless there whole scale changes, which the overriding group of nations that represented in the WHO rejected. And so I I do think China uh, is responsible for this crisis, as Misheng and Susan underscore, but they've agreed to do at least some sort of internal uh, review of how this uh, took place. I'd like to see something like that in the United States. We've fumbled this from the start, and we are rejecting any sense that we want to play a leadership role during this crisis that is engulfing the world.
1: So... You, you have your opponents conceding that the U.S. hasn't done very well on this. But the other vital part of this is, can China step, step in and fill
5: the vacuum? They're arguing that, it's, that it can't. But it's a very good question. And I would say the answer is not a black and white. And I would say the narrative that you get on what China is doing with the rest of the world, certainly if you read the Anglo-Saxon media you get a very negative narrative. Just to give a concrete example, and Pei Minchin reflected it in his statements. He says the Belt and Road Initiative is a complete waste of money. Trillions of dollars are going away. That is also, by the way, sadly, uh, an insult to the intelligence of 100 countries, over 100 countries out of 193 countries in the world have signed up to join the Belt and Road Initiative. And why do they sign up to join the Belt and Road Initiative? Because they get railways, roads, ports. That's what the people need. And the the people's lives are being improved. So if you look at the data in terms of the density of Chinese connectivity with the rest of the world, and let's look at data I think over 127 countries now do more trade with China than they do with the United States. And at the same time, if you talk to the uh, Chinese and you listen to what they say, their understanding of what's going on uh, in the rest of the world, they are able to understand the sympathies of the people. It's a very important point. eh? You know, when the United States attacked WHO under the leadership of an African, Now, when I served for 10 years as Singapore's ambassador to the UN, dealing with over the 50 African ambassadors, there's a very deep sense of solidarity among them, no matter where they come from. And when they feel an African is being attacked unfairly, even though, by all accounts, he's doing overall a good job in managing the World Health Organization, I would say that you really have lost a lot of friends in Africa.
1: Kishore is saying the United States is failing on the soft power side of things very, very deeply.
5: <clears throat> Look, i like to make two
4: points. I think the U.S. is certainly not, um, in its diplomacy, shown itself to be Oh, very astute in dealing with this crisis, and it hasn't actually been very astute in its diplomacy in, in the last couple of years, I would say. This America first mentality does not translate into soft power around the world, and you can, I think, our audience is sophisticated enough to understand that. I mean, we're talking about the impact of the coronavirus. The Belt and Road Initiative was announced in 2013. Yes, a lot of countries have signed up, there have been projects. Uh, China's increased its integration. The question is, what's the impact of the coronavirus on the Belt and Road project? And I think what we see is that the impact of the coronavirus, as Minchin has pointed out with the Chinese economy, is going to be deleterious to that project because China will have less money. These countries will be uh, in, in straightened circumstances. Um, the issue with global trade, the impact of the coronavirus on global trade. Yes, a lot of countries have been increasing their trade with China over the last several decades, but uh, the impact of the coronavirus is going to be to diminish that trade. The proposition isn't about whether or not China's power is rising relatively in the global system uh, over the last several decades, because I think that that is clear, and I think that that is a reality that the U.S. has not f- has failed to deal with adequately. But the question is about the coronavirus if- affecting. Uh, and whether China can convert the coronavirus into some accelerated impact for its rising power in the globe. And I think it's the opposite.
1: Susan and everyone else, let me ask you this question. You know, China handled the the initial stages of the virus very, very badly. They tried to suppress information, famously punished uh, physicians who were whistleblowers, one of whom passed away and became a hero. And that was a very, very big public relations disaster for China. Nevertheless, at some point, China turned the corner and imposed a regime of social distancing that, uh, whether we believe everything that we're hearing out of China or not, certainly led to a a more successful containment and return to economic normalcy than we've been able to experience here. Does that experience make China an exemplar, including the fact that they were only able to do that because they have such extreme ability to control its public socially. But does that send the message? Is, is the Chinese government able to say our way of running countries uh, has its virtues, and that that would become a model to certain countries that perhaps are leaning towards a more authoritarian bent these days anyway? I'd like to take that uh, to Kishore and then to menching
5: Yeah. Well, let me, let me emphasize one key point. The United States believes, and maybe for good reason, that It is a shining city on the hill. It's a model for countries. If other countries copy America, it's good for America, good for the world. And that's a very good thing to have. But the Chinese don't have this kind of universalizing mission. The Chinese don't say that our civilization is the civilization that you should emulate. They say the Chinese civilization is good for the Chinese people and you can have your own systems and you can thrive and you can work together. And for the rest of the world, it's actually easier to deal with a China that is not exporting its model to the rest of the world. They say, we will do what we have to do, you do what you have to do, and let's work together for mutual benefit.
1: I heard Kishore saying China doesn't actually aspire to be an exemplar. It aspires to have influence, but not by offering itself as a as a model of behavior. So I'm not sure if that undermines the point of my question that their ability to have such in extreme social control enough to have done massive amounts of social distancing and, frankly, locked down and, if not lock up, um, we, we, you know, taught the lesson to potentially authoritarian regimes around the world. But, hey, China's got some things
3: figured out. Well, uh, I think, uh, just, just want to pick up on what Kisha has just said. Uh, those countries in Africa may walk, like to have PPEs from China, but I'm sure they're not inviting the Communist Party over to become their, to run their governments, because there's a limit to what China's appeal uh, can be. Uh, China's uh, sort of late-stage success in containing the, tra- uh, the coronavirus in China uh, adopts some methods that we should considered about adopting as well, uh, because they turned out to be quite effective. But then China's success comes in a package. That is, if uh, you really cannot pick the outcome China has produced without picking its system as well. So if you want to uh, sort of have the kind of effective response to China, even after initial stumbling, you have to have the surveillance state. You have to have the Communist Party watching everything you do do you do you have to have your internet censored I don't think many people in the world would like to live under a system uh, as I described
1: We are wrapping up the second round on our conversation and we are now going to move on to round three. Round three uh, is made up of closing statements by all four debaters in turn. They will be brief. They will be two minutes each. I want to remind you, immediately after they conclude their arguing, we're going to ask you to go vote a second time. I'll talk you through that when that happens, but stand by for that. But first, let's move on to our third round. To make his closing statement in support of the resolution coronavirus will reshape the world order in China's favor. Here once again is Kurt
2: Campbell. Kurt, the screen is yours. Thank you, John. In the narrowest of senses, it is undeniable that China has surged into the vacuum that the United States has left uh, when the pandemic has uh, come across the globe. Uh, What we have seen is a Chinese leadership that at the outset made terrible mistakes but has sought to remedy them as uh, best as they are able to do by providing global goods, by trying to lead in international organizations. And this is contrasted dramatically with the lack of leadership and engagement from the Trump administration. Now, I'd I'd argue that it's not too late fundamentally uh, for the United States. I do believe that the United States can rebound. But in this first round, after uh, the coronavirus has swept the planet it is undeniable that china has taken advantage of the situation has moved forward and everyone sees that the united states has been missing an option
1: thanks very much kurt and I, I want to remind people what the resolution is as you hear these closing arguments coronavirus will reshape the world order in china's favor here to argue against the resolution one more time susan thornton
4: thanks john Um, What I would say is that China's power has clearly been increasing in the international system for decades. The resolution before us is the question of whether or not China can take advantage of the coronavirus to convert even more power in the international system. And my argument would be that China has shown that it is unable to make that conversion. And in fact, the coronavirus is diminishing China's power and influence in the international system. I think uh, we've seen a number of, as Kurt mentioned, dramatic mistakes on the part of the Chinese government. And even following those initial mistakes, the Chinese uh, official positions and narratives and outreach have been uh, very ham-handed and very much an own goal against their own self-interest. And this is because of lack of transparency. high level of insecurity on the part of the Chinese government, its brittle domestic politics, and its uh, difficulty in confronting the very certain economic crisis that it's about to undergo. And I think China's soft power, as I mentioned around the world, has taken a severe hit from the various controversies that it has stirred up with its comments surrounding other countries' performance in handling the coronavirus. There's just a distinct lack of empathy coming from the Chinese government, especially when we consider the source of the virus was in China to begin with. And China should be able to convert this kind of uh, humanitarian outreach into positive points for itself in the international system, but has been unable to do so.
1: Thank you very much, Susan Thornton, who was arguing again for you to vote no on the resolution. Our next speaker up, Kishore Mafububani, will be arguing to get you to vote yes on the resolution. Kishore, one more time, the screen is yours.
5: Uh, thank you. Let me, let me conclude on a personal note. You know, when I look back at my life, I realise that in retrospect, I may have been very fortunate in having grown up in a very poor family, in a very poor society. Singapore's per capita income when I was a child was $500 the same as Ghana. I was put on a special feeding programme and I was six years old because technically undernourished. We had no flush toilet. We had gang fights. We had racial riots. So I, I, I experienced all the third world experience at first hand. And having experienced it, I can tell you that the main aspiration of most developing countries today is just to have enough peace and stability so they can focus on their development and not geopolitical contests. And an in Indonesian minister told me the reason why he welcomes visits from Chinese ministers is that they come with concrete proposals to improve railways, roads, ports. He says American officials don't turn up. And when they turn up, they come empty-handed. So if you want to make a difference to lives of people, China is making a difference to lives of people. And the second story is this. By by some strange cultural quirk, because I'm a Hindu Sindhi. I have connection to over 1 billion people in India. My name, Mabu, comes from Persian origins. I have connection to nine Indic states in Southeast Asia. I'm familiar with the Buddhism of China, Japan, South Korea. And I can tell you with this cultural connectivity, I can say with some confidence that when the Asians look at China, yes, they have lots of concerns about the rise of Chinese power. But there's also a very deep and genuine respect for Chinese civilization that is over 4,000 years old. So when they see this resurgence of this Chinese civilization, they say, aha, this is a new reality. We have to live with it. So the respect for China clearly has gone up, and that's why I say, please vote yes. Thank you
1: very much, Kishore. And our last speaker, the last slot in closing statements, goes to Minxing Pei, who will be arguing to get you to vote no on the resolution
3: coronavirus will reshape the world order in China's favor. Since we're looking into this foggy future, we should not just listen to what people like us say or the audience, you should look at, what smart money is doing. And in my case, if I want to check on how China is doing, I check on what Chinese business people, Chinese wealthy people are doing with their money. So here I want to share a personal story with you. Last year, last October, I was in Hong Kong and it, it just happened a friend was having dinner with me and he brought along his immigration consultant And this is a person who was doing a fantastic business, helping Chinese, wealthy Chinese people leave China to get green cards, to get foreign passports. So just out of pure curiosity, I asked him, what is the hottest country wealthy Chinese are trying to get into? And his answer shocked me. He said, Bulgaria. I said, why Bulgaria? He said, well, Bulgaria, you only need... $100,000 100000 to $200,000 to investment. You don't have to live there, and then you'll get EU green card, EU residency. And that got me thinking. And I think if you want to look at China's future, the fact that China's wealthiest people, smart money is moving to Bulgaria, that is ground alone to vote no on the proposition. Thank you very much, Minqing. And
1: that concludes... Round three of our debate, uh, I want to thank uh, Kurt and Michore and Minching and Susan for such a great debate um, for being interesting and informative and incredibly civil. But it's been a pleasure to have you, Kurt Kishore Minching and Susan. thank you so much for joining us. and goodbye to all of you. Thank you. Thank you.: Thank all you, right. John.: And now it's time to declare a winner. Remember, it's the side that changes the most minds over the course of the debate that is named our winner. We had two votes on the resolution. Coronavirus will reshape the world order in China's favor. Before the debate, in polling our online audience, 46% agreed with the resolution. They were for. 35% were against. 19% were undecided. Let's look at what happened in the second vote. In the second vote, the team arguing for the resolution, they went from 46% to 40%. They lost four percentage points. The team against the resolution, their first vote was 35%. Their second vote was 50%. They pulled up 15 percentage points. So that makes them our clear winners. Congratulations to the team arguing against the resolution that coronavirus will reshape the world order in China's favor. Susan Thornton and Minqing Pei. And thank you again for joining us. Remember, the online vote is continuing at iq2us.org. So you can go cast your second vote now. Thanks everybody for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. It was produced in partnership with Foreign Affairs, and all of our debates are generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. Amy Kraft is chief of staff. Shale Mara is director of editorial. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Jennifer Zelmer is senior researcher. Crystal Haas and Aaron Dalton are the radio producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.
0: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you.